this week's edition of Debriefing the Law. I am Joel Oster. And I am Chris Marone. And today is a special day. It's Good Friday edition. So we are going to try to make this topical. <laughs> it's also a day in celebration of a Jackie Robinson. This was the yep. first day that uh, back when was it? 1947, 1948? Yep. April 15th, 1947. So on tax day, apparently he decided to make his debut there with the Brooklyn <laughs> Dodgers. And we're going to talk about that during our courtroom quarterback segment. Also, we have an interview today where I've interviewed Tamina Watson, an immigration law expert. And she had fascinating things to say about the the, the current state of immigration. Uh, excited to have her on as well uh, for that interview. But first, yeah. Chris, I want to talk about some real important stuff. A message that everyone needs to hear and that is this do it yourselfers. Is that a good thing? Is that a noble thing? Or is that proof that you are an idiot? What, what say you, I have plumbing issues. Okay. Oh, yeah. Actual water. I'm not just talking about my digestive tract, but nonetheless, <laughs> I don't say when I have a backup in the drains. And so should I yeah. try to fix it myself? What would you do? Or would you hire the experts? Yeah, if if it can't be fixed by me putting a snake down the toilet, I'm calling the experts straight up 100%. And I have actually anecdotal evidence for this. My wife and I have a two-bedroom house. The second bathroom – or I'm sorry, a two-bathroom house. Um, the second bathroom was having digestive issues. And so we tried to snake it and figure it out. And for months, nothing was working. And we brought in the professionals. They removed the toilet and the subfloor had collapsed under the toilet. Wow. And our, okay. And, and so the main line was like a quarter inch off of the toilet. So not only were we feeding water under our house and, and all the things that go down the toilet, but it was just eroding the subfloor and the foundation. So... See? Yeah. You took this to another level. I was right. just simply taking talking about the kitchen sink. Much better yeah, no. to talk about the, the kitchen sink. Yes, and so what much better. happened for my sink was the drain, then the, the pipes actually went about seven foot uh, horizontally, but there was a slight tilt the wrong direction. And so water oh. would be going through this, and then water would be settling back down, and the grease would be settling back down, causing all kinds of artery hardening to go on. You know, the grease would pack up on the, the outsides. Yeah. So I would, over the years, I would try to snake it myself. I also yes, hired yes. the experts a couple of times, but all they did was brought in their snakes, and it just poked a hole through so that way water could flow. Mm -hmm. They never actually solved the problem. But hey, I'm here to tell you that I decided to pay the big bucks. I brought in the best plumber in town there you go. to come in and then he brought a camera with him. So he Ooh. put his camera all the way through my pipes I love that. I love to this. make sure that all of the blockage and the, the grease or whatever that was packing the sides of the pipes got pushed through and cleaned out. And so, yes, you know what? Easter is coming. We can now do Easter dinner Good. because we have a, a kitchen sink to use. So that is why we are a little bit late here in doing our podcast this morning. <laughs> but hey, you know, there you go. Shout out to my plumber. If you're in the Kansas City area, want a name for a plumber, give me a call and I'll give you the person's name. Hey, this is Love this it. is Easter. This is Good Friday. So what uh, do you have any special Easter plans? Um, so my wife and I will attend church on Easter Sunday, and we last week my wife's sister 
um, was in town. Shout out to my niece, Kate, who just got engaged last week to a wonderful gentleman. We're so excited for her. Um, they flew in my wife's sister. So we did a big Easter dinner with all the family in town last week, um, to celebrate the engagement and to celebrate my sister, my sister-in-law being in town. So this Sunday, what did you eat for dinner? Uh, we had a ham, a brisket, and we had, um, some vegan dish because my sister-in-law is vegan. Okay. I'm trying to figure out what do you make for Easter? I guess ham is traditional. I'm. I'm just not really good with ham. And so I don't know how to smoke mm-hmm. ham. It usually mm-hmm. comes already prepared. I tried yeah. to do it with a glaze and I ended up yeah. burning the entire glaze in the <laughs> ham and the entire kitchen was, was yeah. filled with smoke. So I don't know what to do. But Tri-tip. you guys had tri tip, brisket, you're fine. Any sort of meat. Any sort okay. of meat is good. It's like a Christmas dinner. You don't need to have a Christmas ham. You just have right. a Christmas okay. hunk of meat. That's right. what we do. I have oh. I bought a brisket, so we will trim that brisket and smoke it, and then we'll call it good for Easter. Right. Uh, yeah. But since this is Good Friday and this is a legal podcast, <laughs> we got to at least make mention of Good Friday. How did it get its name? It was a trial. In fact, I do this class called Trials of the Centuries, where I cover all the the famous trials throughout the history of mankind. It's, it's, I find it interesting to study what was the legal system like during Socrates' day, the trial of Socrates. Right. What happened there? It might surprise you, Chris, to know that. Do you, are you familiar with the trial of Socrates? Not especially. I just know that at the end of the day, he was what banished to his house for the rest of his life, house arrest? No. They, he was actually banished to a jail cell where he had to drink hemlock. It was capital punishment. He Ooh. got the death sentence, drank hemlock, and oh. he died. Uh, but the Selfish. interesting thing I like, well, there's a lot of fascinating things about the, the Socrates trial. But the most, what I want to comment on now was the actual voting process. You had 500 jurors wow. listening to the trial. Wow. They each were given a stone disc and there were two baskets as you left the court area. There was a guilty basket mm-hmm. and a not guilty basket. And you would put your stone disc in whichever basket you thought was the right basket. Okay. And they would count the disc up at the end of the day. And that's, um, that's how you got your verdict. And he okay. was found guilty of perverting the youth, uh, corrupting the youth, uh, and uh, advancing religious deities that the state did not recognize. And he was found guilty and sentenced to death. But hey, we can talk wow. about Socrates' trial a little bit later. We, we, cover, we, we cover Socrates through right. O.J. Simpson. We, we covered all, all these fascinating Beautiful. trials. In fact, Chris, we're going to talk about those during this podcast and future podcasts. I want to do a series where we kind of highlight these various trials. Well, today is the anniversary of one of those trials. We're talking about the trial of Jesus. This this is an historical Mm -hmm. trial. It's uh, it's been talked about for for thousands of years. 2022, Uh, exactly. to be exact, <laughs> to be exact, uh, and so it definitely has changed the landscape of our of uh, I'll say our legal systems, but also mm-hmm. our our culture and the way we live yep. life. And so let's talk a little bit about this trial. Uh, now, so so what happened here? Are you, are you familiar with the, the the Passion Play? I assume you're familiar with the Passion Play. Yeah, actually, um, here in Mesa every year. Uh, the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has the Mesa Temple here, and they're in the throes right now of the Easter pageant, where they do the entire life of Christ all the way up through um, the trial with Pontius Pilate um, through the resurrection. It's about a two-hour outdoor play 
um, that's done by all local um, actors and singers and the whole nine yards. So very familiar with that. Okay, so the, I've seen a lot of passion plays, and I was yeah. a part of one that was put on by my church. Mm-hmm. The difference between those is that's obviously done from a religious perspective, right? Yes. We got our gospel accounts, and so this yeah. is what we know. When I teach my class, I try to distance myself from the religious perspectives uh, and say, what, what is the historical account? We actually have two right. accounts of the this trial um, by Josephus and then a Roman uh, historian as well, whose name right now, I think it's Tiberius. I, I'm, I'm butchering his Tiberius, name. Yeah. Yeah, two historians. One's a Roman historian, and the other one was Josephus, a Jewish historian, both non-Christians, who wrote about this trial. And so it's kind of interesting to see, to, to view this from a historical perspective right. and not necessarily just a religious perspective. All right, so here's what we know about the trials. The First of all, you have to understand that Judea in this period of time was on the outer skirts of Roman rule. So you remember mm-hmm. Caesar, Augusta, and the, 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 Rome was the, the big deal in town. Rome obviously was yep. headquartered there in, well, the Roman Empire was headquartered there in Rome and in Italy. And yep. here Judea would have been on the outer skirts, but it still would have been under Roman, Roman control. Rome. Yes. I think about 30, 60 years earlier, uh, it had been taken over and put under Roman rule. So you really had two different legal factions at play there uh, in, in Judea. You had the Judea rule, the law, the, the right. Jewish rules, which was done by a Sanhedrin. Uh, mm-hmm. you, and they there was, you know, you had Israel. I mean, it's a, it's a, it was its own state uh, with its own kingdom, with its own government. Government. You think of King David was the king of, of, uh, of, of Israel. Mm-hmm. So it had its own rule and system. But on top of that now, you had Rome that says that you're part of the Roman Empire. So you had this dual nature of Jewish law and Roman law. Now, Chris, I assume yes. you, uh, you're my you're my one pupil here today for this class. <laughs> Which law do you think ran supreme? The Roman law. Yeah, not even close, right? I mean, you yeah. know, they, Rome's kind of, the Romans, they kind of, uh, they, they pl- placated the, the Jewish people. So, you know, we're going to let you do what you want to do. It's your thing. It, it's your faith. We're going to let you kind of c- control your own affairs as long as you don't interfere with the Roman rule. So the Romans, so. what do they care about more than anything else? Money and control, power. Pa- control. Yeah, control. They wanted yeah. They wanted control. They wanted the people to be able to live lives. They, being a Roman citizen meant something. You wanted them to be, to be you wanted peace in the area. So right. if there was any disruption of that peace, that's going to be a problem. You, that is what the, the Romans did not want. So in that setting, you had John the Baptist. And John the Baptist came in, and he was somewhat of a rebel rouser. He was viewed yeah. as a rebel rouser. And so they wanted to take care of him. And he said some things about, um, or I now the name, it was it Herod uh, Antipas's is yeah. wife or daughter? His, I forget, his what, wife. No. Okay. And that did not go over well. Well, nonetheless, nope. they took that as an opportunity to behead him uh, yeah. for what he did. Well, after that, then came another follower of John the Baptist, or you know, uh, connected with that Jesus, and he yes. then posed a threat to peace and safety. And the Jewish people did not like this. Well, mm-hmm. the actual crime. So you've been a follower of uh, of the this Passion Play, this Trial of Jesus, for quite some time. Mm-hmm. What do you think was the actual crime 
that the Jewish people decided to pursue against Jesus and then the, the, the Roman people pursued against Jesus? Um, I think it was... It wasn't treason. It was, or maybe it was treason. It was, I know it was like false gods. Um, you know what? Actually, I'm thinking of like five different things. I don't know what the exact one was. You're actually kind of right on. And when you said treason, your gut uh, yeah. re reaction there ended up being the, the crime, I believe, at the end of the day, the Pontius Pilate cared about. The, right. the Obviously, the Jewish people, they did not like the fact that he was causing disruption. Um, uh, he was saying, "Hey, look, I'm the. I have a, this new way." Um, right, he, he claimed to be the, the Messiah. Jews. Yeah, right, the second coming, the, the, the Messiah. And so they they did not like his teaching, and so they wanted to shut him up. Well, when he came into the holy city that week, um, mm -hmm. you know, he, he came into the temple, and I forget what day it was during the week. He overturned the money changers' tables there in right. the temple court. Now, Palm Sunday. It was Palm yeah, Sunday. Right. Is that the Palm Sunday? Right. That all yeah. happens. It comes in uh, on the donkey there on Palm Sunday. On the Sunday. donkey. They're waving the it's, palm fronds at him, the whole nine yards. Exactly. Everyone is, is loving on this person. Well, then he goes mm -hmm. to the temple course, and he starts to cause a commotion. Now, this yep. is during Holy Week. This is during the festivals. A right. ton Passover, of people there are going to be in Jerusalem. Exactly. Yep. Passover. That was a big deal. That was, okay, now you're disturbing the peace. Now you got everyone's attention. You don't disturb the peace. And so that's when the Jewish leaders then uh, said, okay, he's disturbing the peace. He overturned the money table, money changers tables there. We got to do something about this. And so you know about the arrest of Jesus that was done there in the Mount of Olives. What I am going to suggest mm -hmm. most likely took place before this arrest is the Jewish leaders would have had to have gone to Pilate to get his blessing to arrest Jesus. Now, right. while, while normally they probably could have arrested Jesus for violation of one of their rules, this was a much bigger deal. And, and they were surely such a big deal. And they actually, one of the, the gospel accounts that say there was a Roman uh, guard, that, it's mainly the, the temple guards that went there, that would have been under mm -hmm. the Jewish control. But there was a Roman influence as well that went there to arrest Jesus. I, am, I feel certain that they probably got this cleared by Pilate before they arrested Jesus. It just it, it wouldn't make right. sense they would do such a big arrest without getting the Roman governor's approval. A any thoughts? Well, I totally agree. I think that um I think the Roman governors didn't care a lot because this was a religious dispute at the time and it wasn't messing too much with their power and control over the people because in Jesus's earlier ministry, right? You render unto Caesar, which is Caesar and render unto God, which is God's. And so he wasn't making a problem for the, the Romans. What I think the problem for the Romans was, was now Pontius and um, uh, Caliphus was now they were bringing the problem to the Romans and they're just like, deal with it. Like, Yes. Just so if, deal with if it and get it done. If they are going to go to Pontius Pilate at the end of the day, this is going to be an arrest done. That's going to really cause a big stir amongst the people right. during this Holy Week. I'm almost certain they would have gotten that cleared by the head honcho there in the area. They would have went to, to, to Pilate's place and said, hey, right. we are planning on arresting Jesus. What are your thoughts about it? And maybe that's why a Roman guard was sent along the way. They kind of stood on the outer skirts, but just kind of making sure the peace was not disturbed too much right. during this uh, arrest. Right, and so little did they know, little did the Jews know that this was going to be a huge problem after three days. Exactly. So then what they did was they went to 
Uh, Annas is Caiaphas place, and Annas mm -hmm. was a um, his father-in-law, former high priest as well. And there was a lot of interaction. Now there is some scholarly dispute as to what took place in the middle of the night. In other words, so Jesus was brought before Annas, he was brought before Caiaphas, was brought before the Sanhedrin. Were these actual trials or would these more properly be thought of as grand jury proceedings? In other words, they're mm -hmm. trying to gather to see what they had, see what charges they could bring against this person that they would eventually take before Pilate. So do you right. view these? And I know one of the gospels mentions it as a trial, but it's also this thought of, do we want to bring charges? Do we find this person committed a crime? And if so, what's our strongest case that we then are going to take to Pontius Pilate. So yeah, I look at it as kind of like the grand jury and the arraignment phase in a criminal okay. trial, right? Like right. we weren't we weren't at disposition because at any point up until this spot, they could have just walked away. Like they weren't ready to go full bore into it. They could have been like, "There's not enough here to take to the Romans. The Romans aren't going to buy this argument. We got to go figure something else out." So they called some witnesses in, right? Uh, according to the gospel accounts, and uh, some of these witnesses gave false testimony. Uh, when they asked Jesus, he said, uh, when it came to, are you are you the Messiah? And then he said, I am. Uh, I am. I forget the, the exact yeah. words there. But, uh, you know, basically he admitted, the, I, am, I am the son of God. And he said, well, this is blasphemy. We have our charges. You are guilty of it. And that's when they decided to take it to the next level. Also interesting under Jewish law that during the time of Passover, or the, the festivals, they could not hold trials and they could not hold trials at night. And so there is some, that's why there's some scholarly dispute. Yep. Was this actually a trial or was this more of a grand jury type proceeding that's going right. to bring these charges before Pilate? All right. Because there's so nothing then, like splitting hairs at, during exactly. a religious week to figure out like how you can, you know, murder your enemies. Yeah. You know? Yes. Because that's, so that's in line with the Gospels. Then they take Jesus to Pilate. Now, why did they take Jesus to Pilate? Well, again, some of the scholarly articles suggest that they, they had to because they, they really what they really wanted at the end of the day is they yeah. wanted a crucifixion. They, they yes. wanted the death penalty. Death now, penalty. It, it is thought that um, the, the Jewish, the Sanhedrin, they did have the power to administer the death penalty. Just go back and, and read Acts where they actually administered the death penalty against Stephen. So there is some, mm -hmm. some record that reflect that the Sanhedrin does have the power, but clearly all the scholars are in agreement. They did not have the power to administer crucifixion as a death penalty. So if that's what right. they wanted, they had to go to Pontius Pilate and get him a, a Roman decree saying he was guilty. So, so they go to Pontius Pilate. And that's where the you have a, a trial before Pontius Pilate. He says some things like, right. look, I'm not going to find him guilty. I want to hear from him myself. Nonetheless, at the end of the day, what won the day for Pontius Pilate would be the tree, in my opinion, the treason charges, as mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier. Because look, you say you are the king of the Jews. Hold on a second here. That sounds like it could be treason right. because Caesar is the true king here. And are you saying you are above Caesar? That might have been perceived as treason. So I think that was the actual charge at the end of the, end of the day uh, right. under, under the Roman uh, rule. So, hey, that's a quick assessment of of the trial of Jesus. It's one of the historical trials. I think the lasting impact from this trial, from a historical perspective, obviously I'm a Christian, so from a religious perspective, we got a lot of other ways that we can go with the story. But from a historical right. perspective, we're talking about 
blasphemy charges. Because under the Jewish law, they were saying, look, this person is, uh, you know, um, uh, speaking blasphemy. And Chris, I think historically there is a problem when you combine the, the criminal jurisdiction criminal justice system and you you join that at the hip with the church i, I just yes. find historically that's a problem and we saw saw that alive and well here with the trial of jesus any concluding thoughts before we move on i think also the at this time the 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 jews took christ to pontius for the political cover right it's not us the, the the temple workers and the, the Jewish leaders, we didn't kill Christ. He was found guilty by a Roman court. So we so I think it gave and I think that's what they were trying to go for, um, CFS and all that, and, and Herod were trying to say, look, they were trying to backdoor the taking down of Christ because they didn't want to have the political fallout for all of his followers. In other words, if there is a real popular guy here who right. a lot of people are going to be following him, and yeah, you had some people that were raising the voice in dissent, that could have been a you know a mob mentality yep. of it. Let's just rile up the crowds. But still, you have a, a popular guy with followers. Yeah, those followers are going to be pretty upset. So if you can pass the buck over to the Romans, that mm -hmm. might be a desirable thing. So I think you did see a little bit of passing the buck going on there between the yep. Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders. All right, well, since we are talking about religion and the law, a little bit of separation of church oh, issues, yeah? let's just uh, make a, a passing reference to the fact that next week the Supreme Court will be hearing argument in Kennedy v. Bremerton School District. Now, this is a case where Joseph Kennedy was a high school football coach. Now, I'm going to go ahead and just give a bare recitation of the facts here. Basically, mm -hmm. he prayed after the games by himself in full view of the students. And consequently, he was fired for praying at the end of football games. Now, I, I'm doing a little bit of qualifying there because I went yeah. ahead and I read the briefs. Well, first okay. of all, I read the, the issue statements by both both Oyez, which is a, a site, O-Y-E-Z. I'm probably mm -hmm. butchering the pronunciation of that. I read their issue statement, and then I read the okay. issue statement on the Supreme Court's website, and my thought was, are these guys talking about the same case? Because they are talking totally opposite. So when I read the, so then I went and I, dig, I dug up the briefing. The briefing from the school district says this. No, this uh, guy, this uh, this football coach was not praying by himself. He was praying with the students. We allowed him to pray by himself, but he was doing it during the game, after the game, with the students. Let me actually read you a little bit from the um, the, the the issue as presented by Oye. And then also by the school district, it says Joseph Candy, a high school football coach, engaged in prayer with a number of students during and after school games. His employer, okay. the Bremerton School District, asked that he discontinue the practice in order to protect the school from a lawsuit based on violation of the Establishment Clause. He refused and instead rallied local and national television, print media, and social media to support him. All right. That's one view of the facts of this case. Now let me read for you the issue as presented by uh, by the, the Coach Kennedy. All right, here's, here's this issue. And this is the one that actually the Supreme Court granted cert on. Petitioner Joseph Kennedy lost his job as okay. a football coach at a public high school because he knelt and said a quiet prayer by himself at midfield after the game ended. 
Chris, what is it? I mean, is it by right. himself or is it a classroom assignment? Which one is it? Because I got to tell you, that's going to make a difference in how the court Huge. rules in this case. Huge difference. Yeah. Any, any, any thoughts on this case? The, the court will be hearing argument next Monday. I, 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 I don't know. I, I guess that we have a 6-3 conservative deliberal court. Uh, it'd be interesting to see which version of the facts this court adopts. Right. And I think that's going to be the turning point, because if it's if the facts are he was by himself on the 50 yard line, I don't even think the three liberal judges are going to say anything to say, no, he can't do that or whatever. Um, But if he was with the students or made the students come pray with him, that is a whole different, you know, ball of wax to handle. So I think it's going to be on which team. pun intended can um, assert the facts to the Supreme court and the ones that the Supreme courts um, adopts. Cause that's the, that's the hinge point, right? Students are the hinge point every time. We'll be following this case more closely next week after oral arguments to report what issues were important to the Supreme court. Exactly. Well, this week we have a special guest from Seattle, Washington. Tamina Watson is the founding attorney for Watson Immigration Law there in Seattle, where she practices U.S. immigration law, focusing on business immigration. She is a blogger, been blogging about immigration since 2008, and has written numerous articles in many publications. She's the author of, I like the titles of these two books, we're going to have her talk about these two books, Legal Heroes in the Trump Era, be inspired, expand your impact, change the world. And the, and uh, th- that's the first book. The second book here is The Startup Visa, Key to Job Growth and Economic Prosperity in America. I'll definitely want to hear about those two books. She's also the founder of the Washington Immigrant Defense Network, which funds and facilitates legal representation in the immigration courtroom. And I love this next thing. Co-founder of Airport Lawyers. Now, just the title of that had me had me sold i had to know more information about that which she then provided which provides critical services during the early travel bans hey tamina before i go on thank you so much for agreeing to be on this podcast i'm so grateful you invited me thank you for having me on your show now i just know after we get done with this conversation my listeners are going to want to know how they can reach you so right out of the gate what is the best way to follow you and to reach you and see what you are up to well, I'm so grateful for that opportunity. Number one, anybody can uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on that. Um, I am all, on all the social media platforms, but the best way is my website, which okay. is www.watsonimmigrationlaw.com. There's a contact page, but I also have a blog. So anything that's on social media anywhere starts on the blog. So it could be a one-stop shop. Now, don't pull over your card to, to jot that down. We're going to have those in the, the show notes here on the podcast. So if you didn't write that down, no worries. Just go back to our show notes, and we'll have all those printed out for you. Hey, thanks so much, uh, Tamina, for joining us as we talked in pre-show. You are right there in sunny Seattle, Washington. Is that a little bit of an overstatement? Oh, my goodness. It's such an overstatement. We have something called the atmospheric river here, which means that it rains for days on end. Although this morning there was a little bit of a reprieve, so it wasn't pouring at least. Um, right, right. But Seattle in the sun is just so beautiful. So all of us in Washington sort of wait, you know, uh, for 10 months to get two months of sun. 
I love Seattle. I had a conference up in, there in Seattle a couple of years ago. My brother lives there in Eugene, Oregon, so not too far down south. So I went to the conference there. I did realize why your coffee is so delicious. I guess it helps you get through the rainy seasons. I'm not sure. I then hopped on a train and then took that train down from Seattle to Eugene, Oregon. It's great scenery there to, to see. Have you ever been on that train ride? From Seattle? I've been on I've been on that train ride to go to Portland. I've been on that train ride to go to Vancouver, uh, Canada. And honestly, the Pacific Northwest is just incredibly beautiful. If you haven't traveled here, take your next vacation domestically. It, so you don't have to have tests to go on an international flight. Right. Now, I'm going to Vancouver here this summer. Is it a good idea to fly into Seattle, then take the train up? It will, in other words, will it be a nice scenic view? Absolutely. So scenic. It is a, okay. a, a very uh, beautiful, comfortable journey on Amtrak all the way to Vancouver downtown. I got to tell you, it's, uh, I, I grew up in mid the Midwest, Kansas City, and and we really didn't use trains much at all in, in Kansas City. We, we love our automobiles, I guess. I don't know. And, and trains weren't really a big part of growing up. So I never really experienced the train experience. And then I went there and I, I rode on some trains on the East Coast and West Coast. It's, it's a great way to travel. It was kind of fun going to the drink cart there and getting your food and your drink and sitting down and just see the scenery. It was a lot of fun. Hey, we obviously are going to talk some immigration today. That's why I had you on. You are the guru of all things immigration. By the way, I would be the anti-guru. I really don't know much at all about immigration, so you can just blow some smoke in my direction. I cannot tell the difference. I did have two immigration cases, by the way. I won both of them, but that was kind of an accident, not intentional. Uh, but before we get there, I want to know the Tamina Watson story. Everyone has a story, a ministry, I call it, a mission in life, a calling. And, and I want to know the Tamina Watson story. How did it come to be that you are now this amazing immigration lawyer? So let's start off with, where did you come from? Well, I love that question. And I just, it occurred to me to start with something that you just mentioned. Everybody has a story and everybody has a mission. In 2022, I realized my mission is to talk about love and how important love is really? in every aspect of, of the world. Yes. I, I mean, I just was like, I'm working so hard to bring change. Why isn't change happening? And I realized love is the answer. So we'll circle back to that later. But I wanted to make sure I didn't miss saying that because I now have a mission, which I didn't have until 2022. But oh, we, my story is we have to unpack what you mean by love is, is, is your mission. I, I am really intrigued. So, hey, that's a great a teaser for later on in the podcast. I can't wait till we get to it myself. But hey, all right. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Well, I was born and raised in London, UK, if you haven't tuned into my accent. But my parents were immigrants to the United Kingdom. They moved from the from Bangladesh, which is a small country next to India. And that might be in the news or in, or in people's minds because of the Rohingya uh, refugee crisis. Um, okay. That's where my parents were born and raised before Bangladesh became Bangladesh um, because it was part of India once upon a time. They moved to the United Kingdom in the 60s and 70s respectively dad and mom and then I was born and I lived there but when I was 8 to 18 those formative years were were lived in Bangladesh my parents decided to okay. spend some time there and then we came back to London and I finished my schooling and as life would happen um, I met my husband on a blind date when I was visiting America yeah it was sleepless in Seattle 
battle, I tell you. And um, three years of long Hold on, did I miss and... that? It was a blind date in America? That's right. I was visiting. Oh. And then um, we had a long distance relationship and eventually here I am. But I was a lawyer in the UK. I was a barrister, which until George Clooney married one didn't mean anything here <laughs> right, because right. I would get confused by, with somebody who makes coffee and I stop using the word barrister. <laughs> <laughs> but for your listeners purposes, barrister is a trial attorney who goes okay. to court. In the UK, there's a separation of the profession. There's a trial attorney and the transactional attorney. In the US, it's all one. And so when I moved here, I was living in Washington state and I took the New York bar exams, which uh, was one of the handful I could take. Right. And I wasn't really sure where my life was going to end up. But I, you know, long story short, I really ended up doing immigration. I went into it kicking and screaming because I didn't really want to do it. But now, the first day, go ahead. At what point in your life did you say, I want to be an immigration attorney. Is that why you went to law school or did doors just open and you went through those doors and it led you to immigration law? How did that journey take place? I really wanted to be a lawyer. My father was a lawyer when I was young. I saw him go to the various inns of courts. He'd take me to court with him. I'd sit in the hallway with my books. I was just so inspired to be a lawyer. I knew that law was a way to help people. But immigration specifically was something I really wanted to stay away from, specifically. Huh, okay. I, I saw my father do that. He, he was an immigration lawyer in the UK. And to me, it was a very community-oriented uh, practice, and it didn't seems to me that I uh, I would be wearing the wig all the time. I wanted to wear my wig and gown and be in the crown courts of, uh, of England. But when I moved here, doors basically opened in immigration only because I was coming from a different background. And also, as you may know, immigration is a federal area of law. Right. Whereas if you want to practice litigation or criminal law, you have to have a state license, which at the time I didn't. But when, even though I went into it kicking and screaming, and I have to just give a shout out to my mother, she really, really encouraged me to be a lawyer. While I was inspired okay. by watching my father, my mother was the wind beneath my wings, always cheering me on and supporting me and getting to where I am. So did I hear that right, that both of your parents were lawyers? No, my mother was a stay-at-home mom at the time. Okay. She okay. eventually right, went into social work. But she okay. really wanted to make sure that I finished my education and definitely followed the path of being a lawyer. But when I moved to the UK, US, you know, suddenly I'm like, oh my gosh, I was a young baby barrister in the UK. It means nothing here. I have to start afresh. And immigration kept following me. And then eventually I was annoyed and said, well, okay, I might as well just do this for five years and then I'll figure out what to do. But the very first day of doing immigration law, I realized that was the calling I was looking for. Interesting. And it was meant to be. So I've always wondered, is it people who do great things in life? Is it that they, as a young person, they said, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to paint the Sistine Chapel. Or is it they just have great characteristics about themselves, great disciplines. And as doors open, they go through them. And then they realize, oh, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity. And it might have been nothing like what they thought they were going to do when they were a kid. Um, my oldest son is, is in college, and he's 
thinking right now, well, what should he do with his career, right? Is his future, the whole world is his oyster, or however that phrase goes. My youngest son graduated from high school last year. He's kind of in that same mode of life. It's just kind of weird to think about how did you get to where you are? But it sounds like for you, once you realize the immigration law, you, that, that you met that opportunity, it just you, 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 it became clear that was your calling. Yes. And I think one of the things that I, you know, definitely um, make sure that younger people who ask me questions get this answer is that preparation meets opportunity and that's where you go. All uh, I, I like wanted it. to do was be a lawyer. And in the UK, I did a, a lot of pro bono work. I mean, I took pro bono work to be my, you know, calling at the time, my vocation. I spent so much time in different practice areas, education law, help, helping parents with children who needed extra help and couldn't get that help. I helped people who were unemployed and looking for, you know, solutions from their employers. I got training in that. I was doing so much pro bono work that um, what I realized is that skills that you pick up in any, any area of law, and you probably agree with this, Joel, is that the, tr the skills are transferable. And what, what the calling is, is, the, is your purpose in life meets that opportunity and you want to help people. You don't know where that help is going to be. I say to people, every area of law is important. You can be helpful wherever you go. But what makes you special is where are your skill sets and what right. are your values and how can you bring those to the table to make the biggest impact. And what happened with immigration is that A, I moved to a different country. I didn't ever feel like an immigrant in the UK, even though my parents were, were immigrants, is I was right. born and raised there. But suddenly I, I have this immigrant experience by going from the UK to the US. I had to go through the paperwork. I had to go through the frustrating waiting times. I had to get a work permit, a social security number. I had to learn how to, you know, not use the Z's and uh, S's and use Z's in the spelling. And, you know, I, there were so many changes that happen in your life that I had the full immigrant experience. And so okay. I also wanted to practice a law that had a direct impact on a, a person's life, not pushing paper and transaction after transaction, not knowing where the end goal is or seeing right, the end right. of that life cycle of the case. Whereas my, my work is really transforming, transforming oh, yeah. lives and livelihoods. And it imagine. took me, yeah, it took me like, you know, 15 years to come to that conclusion of I'm really transforming lives and livelihoods instead of just a case because I am helping them emigrate, their dreams come true, they're right. bringing their families together. That is something you cannot put money on, honestly. I mean, it sounds kind of cliche-ish, but, you know, in elementary school, we were taught that America was the land of opportunity. And so if you are dealing with immigrating to the United States, people are probably looking at that as a great opportunity in their life. For generations to come. I mean, once you move here, then your kids are going to be American citizens as well. So, yeah, you actually are helping them transform not only their lives, but their their their, their offspring as well. Well, that's a, I got to think about that. That's actually a pretty a much better use of your law degree than my use of my law degree. But I like that saying, the phrase you just said, when preparation meets opportunity. Now, you have no reason to know this, but... That's one of my main phrases in life. Not because of some great example you just gave, 
But when my KU Jayhawks won the national title in 1988, our star player Danny Manning said, well, isn't it just lucky that you guys won the national title? He said, nope, preparation meets opportunity. And so we prepared, and then when the opportunity came up, we won the national title. A little different context than what you just mentioned, but all right, well, I want to get into what your thoughts are on immigration, the immigration issues that are going on right now and maybe in the recent past. But before we get there, I want to just throw some softballs out your way just to kind of highlight how ignorant I am when it comes to immigration issues. That's why you're on here. You can set me straight and, and educate me on, on all things immigration. But let's just say I want to travel. I, I want to go to a foreign country. What kind of immigration issues do I need to worry about? Like, Let's say I want to go to... You know, Europe, which I think might be a lot easier as compared to going to China. I mean, how does one even if I want to go live in China or travel there for about three months, do I have to worry about immigration? That's such a great question and such a great way to open this discussion. What is really important for your listeners to understand is every country has borders. Every country is sovereign. They have their own rules and you have to abide by them. Um, and when you're traveling outside the U.S. or traveling inside the U.S. from a different country, you need to have a document that says you are a real person and okay. you are a citizen of X country. And that is your passport. Your passport is essentially, and the passport word is used in so many different contexts, but it literally means a little tiny book that has a picture of your face. Uh, your, you know, height, weight, color of your eye, um, um, eyeball, um, and your hair color, but also which country you're from. That is your passport. That allows you to get on a plane. Okay. But to actually get into the country that you are traveling into. So the plane lands to... in China. Mm-hmm. What do now I Now you are, you are now off, you're deplaning. It takes, you know, a frustratingly long time to get off the plane. But now you are stuck behind a very long line of people to say, I have the right paperwork. That paperwork is generally a visa. Now you mentioned Europe, it's easy. It's because Europe, many most countries in Europe and the US have what's called reciprocity. They have a mutual agreement uh, of waiving visa requirements. They are going to say, because we have this understanding, you don't need a visa, just waive your passport. But China, Indonesia, um, other countries um, will possibly want you to have a little stamp saying somebody at an embassy saw your passport, took your money and said, why are you coming to visit our country? We will vet you and say, yes, you can come and visit for three months. Okay, or so how long does that take? You know, every embassy is different and every country has different rules, different fees. What I will say is um, you have to do your own research about which country you're going to and do you need a visa? And then you have to go to that embassy's website to figure out what the steps okay. are. Some embassies will say come in person. Some embassies will allow a, a, you know, an intermediary. Some will just allow you to mail it in. I'll give you a current example. Uh, just the other way, you know, I've been speaking to a lot of Ukrainian citizens and Russian citizens right. uh, who are trying to come in. And I'll just take the Russian example. Russian and Ukrainian citizens have been declared stateless. So I just described to you the passport, which will say you are a citizen of X country. But when you are declared stateless by the United States, it means that you can go to any embassy 
in the world a U.S. embassy to try to get a U.S. visa. What we are, uh, what, what one of my recent discussions or several discussions with Russian citizens who are sort of trying to come here is which embassy can they go to right. without needing a visa to go to that embassy, and which embassy is going to have the least amount of waiting time. Now, I, I cannot okay. spend the time and charge money to do that research. A lot of people are doing that, but I'm showing them the roadmap of those are the right, primary right. things to look at. So it goes to your question about what do you need. Now, you actually just kind of led into my next question. I have some friends in the Ukraine, and I was talking to them the other day because I was just kind of you know, concerned about their welfare. So how does immigration work in wartime? Uh, I mean, this is the first time in my life that this actually has been an issue, um, at least uh, that, that I remember. I'm back in Iraq when Kuwait, Kuwait was invaded by Iraq. I guess we went to war then. Uh, but... So, so we're, we're in wartime now, and my friends, they, they went from the Ukraine to New Jersey, and they're, just, well, they're staying with their, their daughter. So they must have gotten some kind of visa to go over there pretty quickly, but they still have some relatives back in the Ukraine. Just talk a little bit about how immigration issues are impacted by wartime activities. That's such a great question, and it's my uh, first lifetime, uh, issue in my lifetime, too, especially as an immigration attorney. I think the... I want to mention two things before I answer that question. Number one, that friend of yours that is here, uh, they would likely be able to benefit from the temporary protected status that was just granted by the Biden administration two okay. weeks ago. And so that is very important because while they might have had permission to come in, it's for a very limited amount of time. And okay. so that temporary protected status allows somebody to stay here for 18 months, but they have to fulfill some paperwork. And uh, to piggyback on that, I'm in the process of organizing some training events to train lawyers like you, Joel, to be able to help the vast amount of people that need help. Um, so that was the one thing I was going to say. The second thing I will say is um, the wartime issues that we are seeing are reminiscent of what happened in, in um, the Second World War. And you and I weren't there to see what right, happened. Right. But this administration and, and, and recent administrations haven't really seen that specific issue. So it's not that there are a shortage of humanitarian crises around the world, whether right. it's the southern border that's in the news all the time or Africa or different parts of the world. What's different about this is one country is invading another in a way that we would not expect. And the, the words nuclear threat are not a threat right. anymore. They're not theoretical. They're real. So the seriousness of the situation is significantly elevated from any other way. Now, um, what I wanted to mention is as of this morning, NBC has breaking news that um, the Biden administration is trying to create some program for a specific group of Ukrainians to get here in an expeditious manner. I don't know what that is, is yet. It just landed in my inbox in the last half an hour. So if your listeners are interested, they can go to the NBC website to find that particular information. But for anybody who is, you know, generally out, outside the US, um, who are Ukrainians who are now dispersed in various parts of Europe, this question is on their minds. How can right. I get to the United States? Now, of the 4 million or 3 million that have been displaced, what I do want to say is I don't think everybody wants to be in the U.S. So what the numbers really are, I don't really know. But what 
what we do know is we need a good, efficient way to get those people who want to be here, here in an expeditious manner. Now, number one, there is the tourist visa. Very difficult to get. Ukraine does not have a U.S. embassy that is functional at the moment. But the, the Ukrainian citizens have been designated to go to Frankfurt, Germany. Now, Frankfurt, okay. Germany is taking a very long time to see people a year out. So that is not expeditious. But I did mention earlier that stateless people can go to any other embassy. So if somebody who has the resources and the means to go to an embassy and who does the research I just mentioned, they could possibly go to another embassy to get a tourist visa. But there are lots of pros and cons with that. And uh, it will be too much in the weeds to go into it. But if anybody's interested, um, maybe go find some of my articles that I've written. Right. The second thing that is really important for people to know is these are people who are now refugees. We do have a refugee criteria. Now, the refugee criteria that exists has been there for a very long time. But that visa category takes years and years to process. It doesn't solve the immediate problem that we need. So while it I is see. a good option, we need people to get here sooner rather than later. Now, now you the third option, go, go ahead. Well, you, go you ahead. mentioned both from Ukraine uh, and from Russia. So are we seeing people from both countries wanting to flee those countries, I guess, because they're in the middle of war? I guess I always thought about it from the perspective of the Ukrainians. I didn't think about it from the perspective of the Russians as well. You know, until I started getting the calls, I, I was very much focused on the Ukrainian nationals. But there are a lot of people who do not support the war in Russia. And now suddenly they are at risk. Um, there are people who have been in Russia who are U.S. citizens and they've lived there for a long time uh, with, you know, Russian uh, family members. Uh, and suddenly they are thinking about, you know, leaving the country, but it's not easy at all. The borders are closed in Russia as well. And so these questions are very um, nuanced, but they're also trending issues. And essentially what's happening in the world, you know, always reflects on my practice, believe it or not. When there's a recession, I'm getting the calls about, oh, my gosh, I've lost my job. You know, right. Afghanistan had, a, you know, a, a humanitarian crisis. Immediately I start getting calls. And it's really interesting what I wanted to do. You started off with what did I want to do and how did I get into law? I wanted to make an impact on people's lives. And boy, am I doing right. that? And I get to have a front seat. You know, right. Oh, fleeing a war. I can't think of anything more important as far as helping someone out in a moment of, 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 of strife. Um, all right. Did I cut you off on your third point? You're about to go to a third point. Yes. Okay. Yes. The third point is we saw that play out with the Afghan uh, humanitarian crisis. Now, different type of crisis, but nevertheless, a humanitarian crisis. And uh, there was a program, uh, there is something in the law called humanitarian parole. Now, I want your listeners to know that parole in this context means permission to be in the United States. You're admitting somebody okay. to be here with permission. It's not like a get out of jail card, essentially. Um, but it's based on there is a humanitarian reason for somebody to be here. Now you, me, any American citizen or green card holder can sponsor anybody. There doesn't have to be a familial relationship uh, for that. So in the Afghan national situation, 
40,000 applications and actually probably more since I last uh, did the statistics review um, have been filed and these are individual applications. Those applications have proven to be difficult. The standards have risen since the Afghan crisis happened, um, but they're also lengthy in processing time. Most of them are being denied. That has demonstrated that the Ukrainian nationals need a different type of humanitarian parole system. And that is where the NBC news program that I just mentioned ah. will likely tie in. And in I that, see. they are likely going to say, we will use the humanitarian parole program to create um, a special program for you know, these types of people, and they'll have parameters. I will direct your listeners to read my articles. I have a biweekly column in Above the Law, and the most two recent articles about uh, are about these options where I talk a little bit more in depth about what they are and why they can be useful. So I'm interested okay. to see what unfolds in the next couple of days. Oh, man, you, you are on the cutting edge. All right, now, I know we just got into the, the real heavy there. I meant to start off on the, on the light, right? Hey, I'm traveling about, and then we got right into wartime. So we went right into the heavy stuff, but I, I want to just backtrack a little bit because I'm trying to get a full understanding of immigration, and this actually is a personal issue. I'll just lay it out there. I just got back from a cruise from Bonaire and Curacao, and I want to buy a condo in Bonaire. It's just an amazing place. And I went there and talked to some of the, 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 the real estate agents out there, looked at some condos. What kind of immigration issues does someone have to think about if they want to buy a vacation condo in one of these, you know, foreign places like Bonaire or Curacao? You know, outgoing immigration is not my forte necessarily, but I can talk a lot about what people have to think about when they come here to the U.S. But if, as a you know general issue, I would say, are you allowed to own property? You know, in Vietnam, Cambodia, Dubai, there are different countries where property ownership is allowed or not allowed. You have to have um, part ownership with a citizen, whether it's a business or property. And I, I don't know the ins and outs, but I understand that there are nuanced ownership laws that you must look into. And I think when you're thinking about um, buying a property abroad, do you need a residential visa? Can you just, you know, we just right. talked about waiving your passport. Do you need something like that to actually live there or own property? So I think those are the primary things I would think about. The other thing I would say is, and this was something that I had personal experience with recently, um, what about health insurance? You know, it is a big deal to, uh, and I was just speaking about it with my husband last night. You know, if you have health insurance in the United States, right? will you get coverage in a different country? What if you, you know, trip, you know, accidentally and suddenly your arm is broken or, you know, you need some treatment for an, um, you know, a sudden, you know, I don't know, heart attack. Um, right, right. Well, how do you get treatment for that? Um, and I think those would be my top three things to look at, that if you're going to be somewhere else outside the U.S., you know, how do you make sure that you are safe and nobody's going to bother you? But the question I get generally is I want to live in the United States. I just want to retire, be a, you know, be here for six months. What do I do? And people do buy their houses in Florida or Scottsdale, right. somewhere sunny and beautiful near a beach or Hawaii. Um, 
you can buy a house as a as a foreign national in the U.S. You know, okay. the, the right. treasury treasury will be happy to take your money, and they will do that. The question becomes, how often can you come here and stay ah. here? And this is where you know that waiving of the passport becomes very important. Right. You know, a lot of people who are coming to the U.S. can waive their passport and stay here for ninety days. Not beyond, and COVID brought a lot of challenges to those people. Actually, a story for another time.、Um, but we do not have a residential visa. We only have、okay. work visas or green cards to stay, and none of them are easy. There's no retiree visa, although、uh, over the last decade there have been proposals for retiree visas. We don't have it. But the other thing that people don't think about are taxes. In the United States, I'm not a tax expert, but I often will refer、right. my clients to tax experts. If you have been in the United States for about, I think it's 180 days, suddenly you are a tax resident. How、ah. does that interplay into your,、um, you know, life? I I don't know. Only a tax attorney can tell you.、Um, but those are some of the, you know, issue spotting things that one must keep on their checklists. Interesting. Well, I all I noticed was the the beautiful beaches and、uh, the sand. But hey, I guess I should look at taxes as well.、Um, all right. Well, I'm done with the softballs. Now I want to throw in、uh, fastball high and tight. I like my baseball metaphors. So、uh, again, I have an immigration lawyer on this podcast. I got to take advantage of this. I want the truth about what's going on at the border. I mean, I got to admit, and I'm being totally honest here. I don't get it. I, I've, I've had a lawsuit there in El Paso, Texas, and so I,、um, while I was there, I wanted to go across the border. And my local counsel there,、uh, she said, "No, you don't go across the border. It might take you forever getting back." So I had very, very, very limited experience. But the reason why I don't know what's going on at the border is. It seems like since the border, it, it kind of touches on politics. I say touches; that might be an understatement. It involves politics. Everything I hear, I gotta wonder: Is this is someone distorting the truth here? I mean, do you actually know what is going on at the border? Can you,、uh, in real dummy,、uh, you know, layman language, explain to me what our border crisis is all about without the, the guise of politics? Absolutely. And it's a very complicated issue that is very difficult to simplify. But I will try my best as far as I understand it. But before I say、uh, what I will say, I do want to mention a book I recently read, and the book was written by Sonia Nazario. She is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and she had gone on to to do some investigative journal journalism herself, and wrote this book called Enrique's Journey,、okay. and it is.、Um, Difficult read, but very enlightening to see what happens to people who are in South America trying to cross the border, coming to the U.S., and all the journeys they have to face just to get, you know, across the Rio Grande River. Right. And it will shed light on some of these issues. As far as I understand, and remember, I'm an immigrant, and all of the things that are happening at the border are really a culmination of decades of issues in in the triangle、uh, over there. But essentially, in a very simple way to describe it, people who are fleeing for their lives are trying to come into the United States to just be alive, just stay alive.、Right. There are women, there are children. These men, women, children are facing different types of persecutions, and they just want to come in. And what happens is the southern border 
uh, obviously hits across, you know, there's Mexico, people from Guatemala coming and Honduras. There are a lot of people who are trying to come here. And the United States border is what is essentially, you know, we wanted to have a wall, we don't have a wall, but we do, you know, the, what comes into the politics is the security of it. And what is happening is the immigration service is trying to have a control over who can come in and who cannot come in. And that's where everything becomes very divisive in the discussions where politics meets law and uh, enforcement as well. Law enforcement, the rule of law and politics. That's as simple as I can make it without making it any more difficult. But what really happens is when somebody comes to your borders, and says, I want to have asylum. Right. International laws, the United States laws all say we should allow them to have an opportunity to prove their lives are in danger. And how that is being conducted is where the rubber hits the road. And what I will say is this administration obviously is coming on the heels of a previous administration that had caused a lot of noise. And, um, you know, we heard a lot about caravans during election times and right, we didn't right, right. see the caravans after that. So what was orchestrated, what was not orchestrated, I am not one to say because I don't know the details, but one thinks these are seeds and food for thought. Right. But the crisis in the southern border is a culmination of decades of policies. Right. And what you have heard from the Biden administration is that they're trying to go to the root of the problem. And, you know, this complexity will not be solved in one day. And so many parties have to come and collaborate. And so that's all I can say about it because it's bigger than you and bigger than me and bigger than anybody who's listening to this. But what I will say is that we have incredible leadership uh, even though a lot of people might say I'm not seeing it, we have incredible leadership at the Department of Homeland Security. And we have incredible leadership at the USCIS. Uh, and we have uh, an administration that really wants to solve the problem. The trouble is that there are lots of external problems that are coming in while we have a broken system that they're trying to fix as well. well let me throw an came... idea out there just to see what you think about it. Because again, I am not an expert at all. I had two immigration cases. And in those two immigration cases, what I learned was there is a tremendous backlog of immigration cases. And for us to even you know, run one of those cases through, I mean, it would take months, if not even over a year, before we even got a response. Is it that we had, we had lack the judicial manpower to even process these immigration cases through? Is that part of the problem? That's a really astute observation. And yes, that's part of the problem, but not the only problem. Um, when you talk about backlog, there are backlogs uh, in every aspect of immigration at this point, whether it's the court, whether it's trying to get a green card, whether it's trying to just go to the embassy around the world. And there are different reasons for having that. Um, there was already a backlog before the previous administration came along. And our system um, was set in the 1950s and 60s. Okay. And if you think about the world as it is now, it has evolved so many times over. We have better technology, we have globalization, 
um, the laws that we have do not reflect the modern day uh, life that we have. And so we really do need to have laws that fit these times and we don't. So the law was already broken. The system was already broken. And then we had an administration that trampled on it. Essentially, they took a broken thing and, you know, trampled on it. So we have a system in which the court system, if you like, is really under the Department of Justice. So it doesn't have the independence that it needs to be able to function as best as it could. And what we saw from the previous administration that there were lots of um, restrictions and controls that were being put on judges and the system in and of itself. So the backlog has um, evolved and grown exponentially and it's very difficult to now uh, resolve that. This administration is trying and we'll see where it goes, but there, there, is, there are efforts to try to reduce the backlog. Hey, have you ever thought about running for office? It is now time for courtroom quarterback. Now, Chris, there are a couple issues here I want us to just briefly touch on. The first one is today, April 15th, is not National Tax Day. Uh, it's the day that usually I have, I fear greatly. I tremble <laughs> on April 15th. No, this is the day of celebration. It is Jackie Robinson Day. Explain, why is this Jackie Robinson Day? So on this day, April 15th, 1947, Jackie Robinson made his debut with the Brooklyn Dodgers. He is the first recognized um, black player to play in the modern day MLB. Okay. And, huge deal. Now, I don't huge. think he was the first athlete uh, or African American athlete to play professional sports. I think that was in football, but definitely right. during this time period, baseball right. was the sport of America, it was America's pastime. And the sports were were uh, segregated. You had your um, uh, African American league, and then you had your your Caucasian league. And and this was the first day that they decided we're going to break the collar barrier. And Jackie Robinson became the first player. A huge deal. He right. then became a Hall of Fame player for the Brooklyn Dodgers at yeah. some point in time. They might have moved over to Los Angeles. He had to cross country. I'm not sure when that exactly happened. 1958. Um, well, see, that's why we have you on here. You have the information. <laughs> Baseball is life, man. Baseball is life in the Maroon household. I, this is my one thought, and I'll let you give a thought uh, if you um, want afterwards. I really believe that sports is a great uh, opportunity for the integration of, of the races uh, because I, I really truly believe in my heart of hearts. You might think, Joel, you are, you're crazy. You're naive. You live in la-la <laughs> land. But I've been involved in sports a long time uh, right. at a lot of different levels. Now, not the professional level, but I follow professional sports probably more than the people who get paid to follow professional sports. It is my life, my passion. I pretty much, I used to have a sign up in the house that says, we interrupt this marriage to bring you the football season. <laughs> I, I care deeply about sports. So this is my that. take. I think the first and foremost concern of those people that are actively involved in sports is to win. You, you want to win the game. Yes. You want to beat the other side. If you are a player, 
the competitive juices start flowing. Yes, obviously you want to get a paycheck as well. It is a right. business, but still, when you are between the lines, you want to win the game. I don't even know if I've ever even gotten into a tennis match where I'm actually in the middle of a tennis match, and I said to myself, "Yeah, I don't really care if I win this. You know right. what? It could go either way." No, you want to win the game. No, in order to win the game. You have to have the best players. So their branch, Ricky, who I believe was, I don't know if he was the owner or manager, or who, the manager. Okay. They were saying, look, we want the best players to win the game. So when right. we don't allow people like Jackie Robinson, these absolutely amazing talents of baseball to play, that's hurting our chances. This is stupid. This is idiotic. So he did a very brave thing at that moment in time. And I believe it was because they wanted to, to to uh, well, they wanted to do what is right, but right. they also want to put the best player out there, and I believe that is what is. Uh, that's why I think sports is such a good opportunity to allow for for fairness amongst the races because people really don't care that much about the race; they want to win the game. So I don't know any thoughts on that. I know that's naive and to a, to a certain extent. Maybe that's just my hope and desire, and so that people don't really care about the color mm -hmm. of skin. I think that in 2022 that that is the right take to have is that you want to win. So you want to put the best players on the field or on the, the court or whatever. I think the take back in 1947 was not that at all. It was right. the automatic assumption that African-American blacks, people of color, um, indigenous people were all inferior. And no, 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 I, I get that. But are you, yeah. are you thinking that branch Ricky said, but what was his motivation? And maybe it was a little bit of both. Was his motivation, I want to do this because I want to break down the barriers between uh, the, the races, even though I don't think that Jackie Robinson is that good of a baseball player. Or was he saying, you know what? Jackie Robinson is an incredible baseball player. I want him on our team. That's going to help us win baseball games, and that is the right thing to do. It's probably a little bit of, uh, of uh, hey, I, I want to win baseball games and I want to help break down the barriers between the races. I think I think it's both. I think that Branch Rickey knew that that African-American players could play just as well or better than some of the Caucasian players. I think that Branch Rickey was ahead of his time um, in thinking of how to integrate baseball. But I also think he, he wanted to win. So he saw unequivocal amazing talent in Jackie Robinson, which stand alone, take color and race out of the mix. Jackie Robinson's numbers are hall of fame without him oh, being yes. black. So exactly. you, you see this amazing player that happens to be black and branch Ricky in his head feeling at this point, it's 1947. So the military has been desegregated, right? The, the um, it's pre Brown versus board of education. So there's still a lot of hot, Racial okay. issues. There's still, you know, right. whites only, coloreds only type places. So Branch Ricky wants to win, but I think he also wants to be like, this guy can play. So let's play. I, I honestly don't think that Branch Ricky would have taken a chance on a mediocre player. Interesting. He, he would not have taken a mediocre African-American player and said, we need to desegregate baseball. He picked the best player humanly possible available to him at that time. And he brought them into the Brooklyn. And I and I think it parallels a lot, right? You have the 1965-66 Texas Western Miners, right? We just had Final Four not too long ago, right? So the, yes. the, the Texas Western team that played five black players against Adolph Rupp's Kentucky, and they won the NCAA championship, and that had never been done before. 
right? Because that, you don't play black players. And this is 20 years later. You brought up a, a I, I, I hate to say a sore subject with me, but because right. it's not really a sore subject, but I do got to comment on it. The, the right. example you just gave was, uh, uh, I believe it's the team, uh, you said it was the te well, Texas Western. Which, which is I now, now UTEP. UTEP, right. Yeah. Do you know that that game should not have happened? UTEP Why? versus Kentucky. Because in the semifinals, in the first round of the Final Four, who That's did UTEP right. play? They played my Kansas Jayhawks. And he stepped and out of bounds. JoJo did not step out of bounds. JoJo was clearly stepped out of bounds. bounds. Hit the game-winning shot. He said, nope, out sorry, you were out of bounds. And so KU lost. And so hey, Wasn't it double uh, overtime, too? It was. It was an amazing game there. <laughs> and, and KU should have won that game. JoJo White hit the winning shot. But the rest threw it out. And then right. you had, obviously, the great classic game of UTEP, Texas Western, against Kentucky, where Kentucky lost. And right. I obviously, I know the racial uh, significances of that of that right. win. It's also nice to see Kentucky lose. Can I, can I say that? It's just yes. always nice to yes. see Kentucky lose. I have no problem with that. Sorry, I know I have some UK listeners here for this podcast, but I got to say it. And, um, right. I, one time I wore my baseball, my, my KU hat. It was 2008. Mm -hmm. KU had just won the national championship in basketball. Yep. I am at Disney World wearing my KU hat. Some stranger comes up to me. And do you know what that stranger asked me? Are you a Kentucky fan? Exactly. I almost popped the guy. What? Oh. No, it's KU, not UK. Was oh, it? no. I was in New Orleans last week at the Final Four when KU won. No. And someone, I was walking down Decatur towards Canal Street. I'm setting the scene here. It's the quarter. It's 10 a.m. on Tuesday morning after KU's victory. And some guy is outside of the Red Slipper, Ruby Slipper Cafe on Decatur. And he's talking to him about what a great team Kentucky is. And the guy's laid out in KU Jayhawks. And it just says <laughs> KU. And he's like, I'm like, at some point, that guy realizes that KU isn't Kentucky University. Right. Oh, my goodness. What are we yes. going to do? It is KU, not UK. Well, obviously, right. one last thought here, because I, I, if I have a chance, an opportunity uh -huh. to to dig on Tom Brady, Please I'm going to take it. And Please so do. there was there's a report this last week. Do you yes. remember when Tom Brady retired? Do you I, remember that day? I do. It was like six weeks ago. Oh, I was, I was, remember I was rejoicing. I think I was texting we you with so much glee We were high-fiving, sending oh, memes joy back and forth. Was, exactly. I just loved it. Well, turns out possibly that was fraud. He never really intended to retire he, because it's coming out now that he was in some back room negotiations with with a Miami to become the starting quarterback for Miami. And so Ooh. that was the thought all along, but backroom talk discussions. There's another word for that. It's called tampering. You cannot mm -hmm. do that. If you're under contract with right. some team. And so the thought was, I'll just retire and maybe they'll let me out of the contract. And that will allow for me to then go play for the Miami dolphins. Well, what happened after Tom Brady retired and this plan was set in motion? Brian Flores. Uh, the Brian Flores lawsuit came out where it was alleged that Tom Brady met or was going right. to have a meeting with the owner or was right. it Tom Brady, but it was Brian Flores going to have a meeting with the owner of the Miami Dolphins and Tom Brady was going to just happen to, to be, be there. there. Yes. So this, well, hold on a second here. Well, hold on. So there's this tampering, this desire of Tom Brady to be with the Miami Dolphins has been around for several years. 
Okay, well, in the, if that's the case, maybe there's some truth here. If, if all of a sudden Tom then becomes in Miami Dolphins, it, the timing was not good. It was not a good look because of the Brian Flores lawsuit. And so maybe that's why they got blown up. And so Tom said, well, I'm sure Seg not going to be staying home. And so I might as well go back and play with uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So again, that's that report is out there. Who knows how much of it is true, but I want it to be true. And so I am following it very closely. And so there you go. Oh Any gosh, final yes. thoughts here before we go out and enjoy our Easter weekend? I hope this brings down the Brady. I really does. Like you, I mean, Brady's a great player and he's changed the game. And yes, he has a bunch of Super Bowl rings, but some of that stuff has always been marred with deflate gate and questionable decisions. And, you know, it just makes me really sad that, uh, that that could happen. But at the same time, I'm really excited to, to have this ferreted out. I want, I want him down. I want it gone. And then I want Tom Brady in San Francisco. Just putting that out there. <laughs> hey, retire already, Tom. Retire. Right. You have boys. You have mm-hmm. your kids at home. And then they need their daddy. So, all right. All right. That being said, have a great Easter weekend. And we'll talk to you next week. See you, everybody. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our Vice President of Operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a complete and utter mess. Sean Wynn and 15.5 Features for making me sound way better than I actually do. Brooke Bolin for our marketing efforts. And Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Tri- Plus City Marketing for our technical and computer support.